Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And so with that, today we are going to stop and to bless a garden. Now, some of you are like, that, that's, that feels weird. Like, we're still doing the Easter thing, right? Like, shouldn't we just keep doing the Easter thing? You know, Jesus is risen from the dead, so on and so forth. And you might say, well, gee, why does the church have a garden in the first place? Like, if I asked you, how many of you have some kind of garden at your home right now? Like, maybe it started, maybe it's not, but a lot of you have something that's going in. Some of, some of you are lying to me. You're just sitting there being very German right now. Or, I know there are gardens out there. And so I always ask the first question, I've been doing agricultural ministry for a long time, when churches are like, we want to start a garden, I'm like, well, why do you want to do that? And why do one here at a place like this, a church or a house of worship? And so my question to you all, again this year, is what is it that you expect to happen out there? What is it that you want to happen as people interact with this garden? I'll give you my answer. And my answer is, like everything else that goes on inside these walls and outside these walls, everything that ever has the name St. Mary's on it, I pray that it leads us into the way of Jesus, that it would be Jesus announced, Jesus informed, and Jesus shaped. That at the end of it, anyone who interacts with that garden, whether it is planting, harvesting, weeding, which none of us seem to like to do, or even the eating of it, anyone who touches this would be informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question then is, well, what does a garden have to do with Jesus? Well, I want to put into your head just a place to start that Jesus goes out to the wilderness. He goes out to a deserted place, it says. He goes away from the crowds to pray. And then once he has prayed, he goes back into town, and there he enacts a miracle. And you will understand if I tell you that when I see Jesus do this, I cannot help but think of congregations and communities just like this. Us kind of out here, not really on the way to anywhere. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I love living out here, but you really can't get anywhere from here. Thank you. Thank, I'm glad you share this opinion. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm trying to be honest. Every time I go across Mayberry, it's like, geez, how many turns does it take to get across the Tawny Town? But anyway. So, but Jesus comes out to a place a lot like this, and he spends time with God, and it's because he spent time with God that he enacts miracles in the world. And I can't help but be inspired by this story. And it sounds a lot like two other people who have informed my work, my life, who have helped me kind of understand what I should be about, Two people whose stories I'd like to share with you this morning. One a farmer and one a monk. Hence the name of the sermon. The monk is a guy by the name, we know him today as Saint Anthony. He wasn't saint. His friends never called him saint. But he became a saint. Saint Anthony grew up in a town a lot like this. And he heard the call. He went into church one day and he heard those very difficult words where Jesus says, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And St. Anthony was dialed into what Jesus was saying. So he says, you know what? I'm going to do that. And so he does exactly that. He sells all of his land. He walks away from his family. And he says, in this place, I will serve the Lord. Completely in poverty, I will serve God. But not just in any place. St. Anthony lived on the outskirts of a desert. And he saw fit to go and to live into the desert, away from everyone. 
Now, the astute listener will recognize that the desert has always been a place for stories of God's people, right? Whether it's the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus goes out and is tempted out there. The wilderness, the desert, is really, really meaningful, and that's where Anthony wanted to be. But he got out there, and maybe you think, well, you know, some of us, more introverted types, are like, you mean I get to go live in the middle of nowhere, just talk to God all day, and I don't have to be bothered by other people? Some of us, that sounds like not the worst thing in the world, right? That's a joke. It sounds easy. That's not how the story is recounted. What St. Anthony found out there was a dynamic and difficult life of temptation. Stories are told, certainly some of them are mythologies, but nevertheless, stories are told of demons who would come and who would just beat him up. Images would flash of things that tempted him very, very much. But by prayer and perseverance, he weathered these things throughout his life. And what we know of St. Anthony is that people started hearing about what he was doing and wanted to follow after him. They're like, God is doing something in his life. I want to be a part of that. And slowly and surely, there was a community that formed around him. And today we know him as the father of monasticism. He was the first monk. The other guy who's inspired, who is in, Jesus' story inspires me, is a guy I've talked about him from here, from time to time, is Wendell Berry. If you know anything about Wendell, you know, he continues to be one of our nation's best writers. I will go to the grave arguing this. But Wendell grew up in Kentucky discovered that he was a genius writer. And so he starts on a journey that takes him to Stanford University, where he is a fellow in their writing institute. Stanford sends him to France, where he's writing in France, and France sends him back to New York University, where he has a cushy job teaching writing in one of the finest universities we have in the the country. But there was this tug on his heart. He's like, this is not what my life is supposed to be about. And eventually... Barry and his wife, Tanya, decide that they are going back to Kentucky, what he calls a little nowhere place. And he buys 17 acres, he buys some border Cheviot sheep, and he gets to work farming. And he describes this move this way in one of his books. He says, the place is precedent to my work. What he's saying is the place where I do my work matters as much as the work that I do. Place matters. And he reflects on community when he says a community is the mental and spiritual condition of knowing that the place is shared and that the people who share the place define and limit the possibilities of each other's lives. It is the knowledge that people have of each other, their concern for each other, their trust in each other, the freedom with which they come and go amongst themselves. He thinks deeply about what it means to live in tight community, the thing that we value about being in a place like this. He continues to write. He's very old. He's well into his 90s now. But he continues to write with great clarity of thought as a Christian and as a prophet of, in many ways, the environmental movement and the agricultural movement as well. What strikes me about the farmer and the monk is that these two wildly different people from two wildly different worlds who go about their calling in two wildly different ways have this similar impulse. The impulse to retreat to a nowhere place, to live on and in the land. And what they both discovered was not that that life was a life of ease and less responsibility. No, it was a life that required rigor and commitment. But their message thousands of years ago and right now is remarkably the same. To come out to a place like this, one can experience God. 
Places like this are places where one can experience God. It's not easy. It's not simple. There are temptations to be found here, but places like this are places where you can experience God and be changed and then go and change the world. As we said, St. Anthony, the father of monasticism, Wendell Berry, a foremost critic of agriculture, land, and local culture. Their lived story of going to the places where nothing happens stands in stark contrast to what culture often says about us. Culture often says one of two things in my experience. Now, my experience is getting a little old. I spent four years in Philadelphia, so, and that was 20 years ago, so it's getting a little fuzzy. But all I ever heard about the place where I came from, from people who don't understand the place where I came from, is one of two things. Either we are backwards and unserious, or we are beautiful and carefree. <laughs> I laughed at them. I said, you do one morning in the parlor, then we'll talk. But neither of these positions take seriously the actual lives of those who live on the land. Neither take seriously that in places like Silver Run, people who, like St. Anthony and Wendell Berry, experiences like this happen every day. That places like this are indeed spiritually weighty. Doesn't make us better than anyone else, doesn't make us worse than anyone else, but we have an experience out here away from what society thinks of as society, there is something happening here that is spiritually significant. And so I wanted to ask some friends, what are the spiritual issues that you are going through, people who live out here? I didn't ask any of you. I love you, but I wanted to get a slightly different perspective. So I called up a couple people that I've gotten to know since the funeral of Michael Heath. A couple people reached out to me, and they said, hey, could we just be in conversation over the next couple of weeks? I said, sure, I'd love to. And so I reached back out to them. I said, hey, could you help me with a sermon this week? They're like, sure, what do you need? I said, tell me what you're going through. Tell me what, you, tell me what your experience is, because I don't make my living off the land. I make my living here. But tell me what you go through. And I asked if I could share some of their comments with you. They sent this. One gentleman said, we are always worried about the environment. And how government laws and changes are meant more for big business, but affects farmers, big and small. Also, the prices the farmer gets paid for his milk changes very little, while everything around him continues to become more expensive. Financial stress puts a huge burden on relationships and mental health. That's spiritually weighty stuff. Somebody else said, let me explain to you what it takes to create a pound of butter. <laughs> says, first off, you're going to need to buy some cows or raise calves for two years, two years. Then you're going to need a facility. You're going to need land for that facility. You're going to need more land to produce feed, and you're going to need machinery for those crops. After you invest in these items, you're going to have to milk the cows morning and night every day and do your best to keep them happy, healthy, and alive. And I will add parenthetically, your best one will always be sick all the time. But that's never, that, leave that aside. He says, just a heads up, you're going to need about 20 liters of milk to make one pound of butter. And oh, by the way, you're going to need a facility to make that butter as well. That's what we go through. He said, that's what we deal with every day. Spiritually weighty realities out here with people who live on the land. And so the question then is, well, where is God in all that? What is it you would like me to say back to these folks? 
What is it you would like me to say to folks, you know, where financial stress puts this huge burden on relationships and mental health? That's the one that really drove, I know how dairy prices are, but boy, that's the one that drove the stake through my heart. Well, I think we have a patron saint for what it looks like to wrestle with these realities in the story of Jacob this morning. Because Jacob was also in a spiritually weighty place. From the day he was born, Jacob was in conflict. Jacob never had a day where he could just sit back and go, you know what, it's pretty nice out here. The scriptures say that he came out of the womb holding on to his brother Esau's ankle, like the classic sibling rivalry thing going on. The most famous story of Jacob is that he was in competition for his birthright blessing that was rightfully his brother's, because his brother's was born first. His brother was born first. Some would say that he stole that birthright just so, that he could, just so he could have that for himself. He's in conflict with his very family. There's a story about how he rolled away a huge stone from the mouth of the well, and now it is called Jacob's well, but he wrestled with that. The stories are accounted that he was in constant bickering with his uncle Laban. Some of us know what it's like to constantly be arguing with that uncle. You know what I mean? Jacob is always in conflict. And in a moment, it all comes crashing down on him in one event. It tells us in the middle of the night, something grabbed him. Someone grabbed him. Now, this often gets preached as, you know, Jacob was wrestling with God. This, this person is never identified as God. It might be, but that's not clear. And I started to read, what do some Jewish scholars teach us about their father, Jacob? And what I read is it's more as if the entire struggle that he had wrestled with his whole life had descended on him in a moment. There's a sense in which Jacob in this moment is wrestling with himself, with everything that his life has become, with this dark night of the soul that he simply cannot escape. He's in the middle of the night wrestling with somebody who pops him in the hip socket so that he's limping. You know anybody who limps a little bit through life? And Jacob gets a winning blow. And it's finally coming to the end, and the man wants to be released. He says, let me go, but Jacob says, not until you bless me. And the blessing that he's given isn't money, wealth, land, which often happens in the Hebrew scriptures. Often there's some physical benefit. No. In this, he's simply given a name, Israel, which means, for you have striven with God and man and have won out. And Jacob names that place. He names it Peniel, something like that, which means face-to-face with God. In this deserted place, Jacob wrestles with his own demons, wrestles with God, wrestles with his own reality, and has won out and comes face to face with God. I think that's what communities like us and the people who tend the land and the farmers that I talk to, that's what they go through. They're wrestling with realities. They're wrestling with themselves. They're wrestling with family. They're wrestling with economic factors they cannot control. They're wrestling with sort of the sin and the burden that we all carry around in our own souls. And sometimes a hip gets put out of joint a little bit. But Jacob offers this promise that if we continue to wrestle in the the spiritual weightiness of our fears and of our concerns, that there is a sense that we can come face to face with God. And it is this story, in this context in which we live, that allows me to let go of our existence as sort of this Thomas Kincaid painting, as an icon of rural life, that everything is good and beautiful here. And it allows me a little bit more to embrace the dirt 
and the manure. Can you say manure from the pulpit? What we're going to this morning. To embrace all of that and be free to enter into the truth of the weightiness that we all walk through every single day. We can be freed from the idea that we live in some kind of agrarian utopia that used to exist, but maybe we can bring it back if we have garden beds. No, 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 no. We can be free of the lie that places like this no longer matter. The world will continue to tell us that. It's not true. We have so much to offer. And once we're free of those lies that we don't matter, that everything is perfect and good out here, we can now be brought face-to-face into an experience of God. We can walk with God. We can walk with our neighbors. We can wrestle this out. We can take God by the shoulders and say, don't let me go until you bless me. Yes, it is hard work. But the fr- and yes, we might get a hip out of joint. Nobody said this Christian walk is easy, but the fruit of that formation, the fruit of that wrestling... Is the formation of our bodies and souls and spirits in the very image of Jesus Christ who died and who rose again. Here we can find God. And that's why I believe this garden matters so much. Because it is a place for us to come alongside those who work the land and have done so for generations and those who would like to work the land and now can't find a place to go. But people who have their hands in the soil, who live close to the land like we do, The garden presents us an opportunity to enter into the kind of contemplative and serious space that Jacob was in, and St. Anthony was in, and Wendell Berry is in, and y'all are in every day. And that garden can be every bit as contemplative as our Easter vigil or a quiet sanctuary, and it can be a place to wrestle with the realities of soil and culture, demons and death, neighbors and angels, with a rake in one hand, a hoe in the other, and yes, under our arms, both a Bible and a prayer book. We can do all this work together. Because the garden, as we put our hands and our knees and our backs into this work, it will break down the lies and will expose us to joy. The garden is an opportunity to wrestle with the God of creation, the God of incarnation, and the God of resurrection. To wrestle with the God of creation is to put ourselves in touch with the soil, with pests. Yes, there will be pests. Maybe this year I can figure out how they can't just eat all the zucchini to death, but we'll try. But we put ourselves in touch with those realities because those are real. It'll put us in touch with weather and with sweat to be actively engaged in the service of Christ in our bodies as we are able to touch the soil of real earth, to live into the realities of food production, yes, in small ways, but to understand that a little bit more and to understand what environmental degradation looks like and to understand what are the limits of our humanity. Work as hard as we can. We can't do it all. The garden will teach us all that. We will learn the God of creation. To engage with the God of incarnation is to walk as Jesus did, to seek out the places of pain and suffering, the struggles of farmers and gardeners and caretakers, people whose lives are invested in love of something else that is living, the struggles of the hungry as we try to take the edge off of hunger and take the edge off of nutrition in some capacity, to come alongside the downtrodden and outcasts. Every time we walk past that garden, we must remember those who suffer because they don't have access to those kinds of things because that's what Jesus did. Not in a low stakes, you know, we're having fun gardening, although I hope you have fun in the garden, but in the kind of work that brings us to Peniel, face to face with the realities of living here and forms us to witness to love in this place. And finally, we encounter in the garden the God of resurrection who defeats death and hell 
and in the same way takes our small work and multiplies it into baskets of goodness for our, for, for our neighbors and, by the way, for us. We are better because of that work. So as we prepare to bless that garden, this spiritually weighty place, this place that, will, that is home for both farmer and monk, I invite you to read back over Psalm 65. We're not going to recite it together, but I wanted to draw your attention to it. At the beginning of this psalm is a celebration of what God has done, but it has been a hard-won reality. When deeds of iniquity overwhelm us, this guy, the guy who wrote this has seen some things. He says, no, you forgive our transgressions. Happy are those whom you choose and bring near to live into your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. We come to your temple to wrestle it out with you, God. And as they have walked, wrestling with God, going through reality, getting your hip thrown out of joint every once in a while, you know what happens at the end? We start to see the earth changed. You visit the earth and water it. You enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You soften its growth. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Wrestling with God changes us and provides for our neighbors. That's what that garden is about. And so friends, as we prepare to bless it, may we not just bless it, but may we ready it for the spiritually weighty realities that await us outside and await us in the lives of everyone around here who, walk, who lives in a place like this, a place that matters, a place where we can come face to face with God. St. Mary's. I wanted to keep the conversation going after Sunday's garden blessing by introducing you to a little bit more of Wendell Berry's work. Now he's written books, multiple, multiple books, but I actually wanted to introduce you to a little bit of poetry. And here's why. I read one time a pastor once said that it's amazing how little the American church cares about poetry given how much the scriptures are actually poetry. So every once in a while, I think it's a good spiritual practice, I do this myself, to dive back into a little bit of poetry. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't, but I'm always enriched in that process. And so I wanted to introduce you to one of Wendell Berry's poems. But I'd also like to read it for you, and then perhaps walk you through it a little bit, and see if maybe it pops for you. This poem is called Wild Geese. Horseback on Sunday morning. Harvest over, we taste persimmon and wild grape, sharp sweet of summer's end. In time's maze over fall fields, we name names that went west from here, names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise, pale in the seed's marrow. Geese appear high over us, pass, and the sky closes. Abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. And so it's a short poem with images that make a lot of sense to us. But if we spend just a minute with them, I think they pop remarkably. And the first line is the one that immediately transports us somewhere else. Horseback, 
on Sunday morning. Now, yesterday I was taking my niece to her horse riding lesson. And as soon as I think of horseback, I am transported out of any building, out of the situation that I am. And immediately I'm put in a place where I'm in a field or a forest on horseback in the wild. And that's what Barry wants. He wants us to think about these themes, not from the place of an office cubicle, but in the midst of creation. And Sunday morning, well, what do we do on Sunday morning? Yes, we worship, but what is Sunday morning? Sunday morning is always a celebration of the resurrection. And here he gives us right away the themes he wants us to think about. Horseback in creation, Sunday morning resurrection. And then he says the harvest over. And I couldn't help but actually, and we think autumn, but I couldn't help but be taken back to the garden where Jesus was raised. The harvest is over. The victory is won. The work is done. All of this is resurrection imagery. And then he talks about, we taste persimmon and wild grape, sharp sweet of summer's end. And if we're continuing with resurrection imagery, my mind immediately went to communion. That this harvest, this resurrection is tangy. It is full of flavor. Just like a harvest, it is hard won. And then he shifts. So with all this resurrection imagery, he wants us to think about a couple things. And he shifts to a couple images. The first is this idea of naming names through time, these names that have gone west. And he's thinking about resurrection, how resurrection leads to new life. And so as you think about those that have gone before us, we start to remember that we are the new life that has come from them. And yes, there will be lives that come behind us, but we are the new life as they sought a new life and now their names are listed on graves. In the same way, he talks about these persimmon seeds, which are native in some form to Kentucky and to that part of the world where Wendell Berry is from. And he cracks open this persimmon and he looks in and he says that he finds the tree that stands in promise, that the next life is already in the current one. Which is true for human communities. It's true for creation. The new life is already inside of us. It just needs to come forth. And so we have resurrection, we have this promise of new life, and then we get the title of this, Wild Geese. And we've all seen this. We've all seen this a million times. It's a powerful images of geese in the autumn going in their familiar V-shape to wherever it is they're going. And he says, they appear high over us, pass, and the sky closes. Geese are on their way, following the rhythms that are inherent in them. They're following the rhythms in light of this harvest time. If you unpack that a little bit, he's talking about this idea that this new life inside of us, this resurrection life, has rhythms and practices. And like geese, we're invited to walk into those rhythms because those rhythms are good for us. I love this line. Abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. Geese don't ask questions of faith. They trust what is inside of them. They just go at it with abandon. They don't stop and think, well, is it time for us to go to, if, is it time for us to go south? No, they just go. And that is such a powerful image of what resurrection life is all about. Trusting where it is that God is taking us. Trust for the pathways that are inherent in us and holding us as well to an ancient faith. And then we get the first of the most powerful line in this poem. What we need is here. And I suspect he's looking at the created order, whether it's geese or persimmons or humans. 
and saying that what we have been given, what God has given us in creation is enough. What we need is here. But then he turns to prayer. And we pray not for a new heaven or earth, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What he's saying is that in resurrection, what we need is in us. Not because we put it there, but because Christ has. Not because we've done anything good, but because Christ did. And what we need is not activity. What we need is not to create something. What we need is not to, not to build things or to make buildings or idols or programs. No, what we need actually is quiet and clarity. What we need is here. and We are being called into a new way of being. And I think this is a lesson that can only be learned as we start from the created order by being horseback on a Sunday morning as we have the blessing and privilege of living close to the land, at least living alongside of those who do, those who tend to the earth, our farmers, our gardeners, our nature lovers. They have something to teach us. What we need is here. And what you need is in you through the power of Jesus Christ. So I invite you to spend some more time with this poem. And if you want to sp spread out and look at some more of Barry's poetry, they're very accessible with images that are familiar to us, and I invite you to do that. And if you do that, please holler back at me. We'd love to talk about his poetry or his prose, even just his story. But I think there's something special about this that I wanted to give to you on the backside of this garden blessing. So what we need is in the garden. What we need is in our souls. What you need is in you. And I pray that you would find that throughout this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Peace and good, y'all.